Hey, I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. My guest today is Alicia Tillman, Chief Marketing Officer of SAP. Prior to SAP, Alicia spent 11 years as a VP at American Express, working across public affairs, comms, marketing, and business services. She joined SAP in 2015, first as the CMO of SAP Ariba, which is the largest B2B marketplace in the world. In 2017, she assumed her more wide-ranging role as CMO of SAP, where she is championing a major shift in the company's marketing strategy, from product-centric to purpose-driven. She has been covered in publications including Forbes, CMO.com, and Adweek. She has become a highly sought-after public speaker at marketing conferences around the world. And in 2018, Forbes named her to their annual list of the most influential CMOs in the world. As a client of Momentum, I have had the distinct pleasure of working directly with Alicia. And after seeing her in action, I knew I had to have her on the show. So this is Alicia Tillman and I talking to ourselves. Where are you from and what did your parents do? Oh, well, I am uh, born and raised in New Jersey. I'm a Jersey girl. Uh, Very proud of that. And uh, my parents were both uh, executives. Um, They were both in retail. Um, They started out uh, working together. In fact, my mom started out uh, working at Wanamakers, which is a retail brand that no one has probably heard of anymore here in Manhattan. What did 12-year-old Alicia want to be when she grew up? That's a great question. I, uh, I I had dreams like like most kids do. Uh, I wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to be a rock star, um, and I wanted to be a teacher too. I loved and and playing school and and practicing my singing and my dancing in my bedroom on my own. Uh, those are things that that most kids. Uh, dreamed and aspired to to become, and I think what's common in all of that, even though kind of being a rock star is only given to a select few, it's it's uh, you know it's 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 aligning to your interests. It's how you can think about being a leader and yeah. and uh, going after things, and and I think it. Even though I, it didn't manifest into me becoming a rock star, <laughs> uh, you know, I definitely think I took the most of what was the essence of that into into what I do today. There are rock star elements of being on the Forbes most influential CMOs, but <laughs> it's, you're right. It's why I love to ask that question because it's always interesting to to find out what elements of that first response find their way into your profession and what you're describing is sort of like high stakes presentation and and high stakes preparation to to put your best foot forward um when did marketing start to present itself as something you might like to make a career out of i i think pretty early on uh the other thing that i was really drawn to when i was younger was art i love to draw i i love to uh, communicate and 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 think about how you 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 visualize and start to portray the way you talk in in pictures. And so I loved being able to look at scenes, look at people, uh, and and create a story, but but do that through art. And so much of of marketing at the core of it is. Use of of how well you communicate and and often how you do that through creativity and I've always been a believer that creativity is absolutely at the heart of of the best marketing strategies on the planet and being so interested in in that early you you then start to quickly think about or your parents quickly say to you well how will that turn into a paying job later in life and. Then I started to get directed into communications and journalism and advertising, those fields that would harness my desire to want to write stories and 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 think about uh, how to draw and how to be creative and and those were the fields that were first presented to me and I w- and I was very fortunate. You know, I had I had parents of friends growing up who who were in advertising and media and and public relations and so I got to actually see and and experience what they were doing every single day so I was one of those few kids who knew pretty early on uh, declared my major my freshman year of college that I wanted to go into communications and marketing because it just it felt right yeah. it felt right and it felt aligned to how I grew up 
That's really cool. And then um, fast forwarding a bit, you spent a little over a decade at American Express, um, which some people don't know, but it's a company that just in the last handful of years has graduated multiple CMOs, uh, among them yourself, um, Diego Scotti at Verizon, Leslie Berlin at Twitter, and and many others. Um, what is it about American Express that has made it such an incubator for business and marketing talent? American Express at its heart is a marketing company, really. Um, if you think about the programs that have come out of American Express and and what the brand is known for, it's absolutely a brand-led company. Uh, you know, if you think about what they've created with with the Centurion card or the Platinum card and all of the the privileges that you get with being a member of both and and it's a it's it's about being part of a community and and I started at American Express when I was 27 years old and I always like to say it's where I learned truly how to become a marketer how you build marketing programs to connect with your consumers emotionally and and tap into things that are important to them and status and community and access are things that are important to people yeah. and when you carry an American Express card it is it is both a symbol of that but it also allows you access into things that you otherwise you you don't get if you're you're not a customer of American Express and to be able to to have that as as your brand promise and to be able to innovate against that every day from a marketing perspective uh, to create these experiences because the reality is is we live in an experience economy and and to be able to to have programs that allow you to experience life to its fullest that's what you really learn at American Express and the same holds true today even when you look at their campaigns that are in in market now don't live life without it yeah it's a perfect transition and as we get into SAP I think the first most important question for the benefit of some of our listeners is if we may let us transport ourselves out of the podcast studio and we're at a dinner party and someone is standing across from you holding a glass of wine, <laughs> maybe with a pinky out, um, <laughs> and they ask you, what exactly is it that SAP does? Do you have a sort of packaged response that's easily digestible for people? And can you give that to us? Fabulous question, especially for the CMO of SAP. Yeah. Um, so transporting myself to a dinner party or even a family gathering when my family tries to figure out what it is that I do. Um, SAP, I mean, firstly, is a technology company. Um, we are the largest enterprise uh, software company in the world. But the easiest way to think about what we do is nearly 80% of the world's transactions are flowing through an SAP system on some level. So what does that mean? It means, um, you know, if you're a corporate professional and you interact with technology and tools to help you drive your performance, uh, your your compensation and how that gets managed through the human resources department, chances are they're using SAP technology to, to manage that process, how you submit performance reviews, how you, you look at your benefits and your compensation, SAP technology. Um, how you're managing your, your financial systems in your back office, SAP technology. Uh, booking a a flight to travel somewhere for business, SAP technology. Filing our fun expense reports after that business trip, SAP technology. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Um, there is no company uh, other than SAP that has innovated and brought technology to every functional area of a company whether that be the commerce platforms that are embedded into our dot-com systems today to drive commerce uh, on behalf of the CMO or the chief digital officer, that's SAP technology, to the human resources technology, to uh, finding temporary labor to help support with a big project you have, to sourcing and buying goods from suppliers all around the world to buy your pens and pencils to source your next supplier to focus on your big marketing projects. So anytime there is technology that's enabling a functional area within a company, chances are that's SAP technology that's enabling that. Right. And, and fundamentally, your buyers are the CEOs, 
CFOs, CIOs, and CMOs of the biggest companies in the world. Is that accurate? Absolutely accurate. And it's not just your biggest companies, but it's also your your small and your mid-sized companies as well. So we serve as the backbone of operations uh, technically for companies, but we also offer the technology that sits within customer experiences as well. Um, so everything from back office to front office technology, it's powered by SAP. Yeah. Um, you came to SAP in 2015. You've been there for about four years. As an, as an outsider assuming a senior role, can you describe a little bit of the learning curve to getting smart fast on such a complex business and, and maybe more specifically in becoming fluent in the language of SAP within the building? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I will say that my learning curve was was only just understanding the industry and making sure that I understood the products and what set SAP apart. So, what were our different? What's our differentiating value? And what are our technologies working in support of? What challenges are we looking to solve? Um, and and that was a that was a pretty quick ramp up because we have so many technologies that work in support of every functional area within a company, uh, and seeing how we were differentiated. I mean, therein is where our differentiation lies. Is there's no company on earth that offers innovation that that cuts across every single buying category of a company. Where I didn't have a learning curve, which most people typically do uh, when they come into a big company is big companies are typically very matrixed. You have a lot of dependencies outside of your core functional area, a lot of stakeholders that you need to align with. And so collaboration is key. American Express, another big company, highly matrixed as an organization. I grew up there. I spent 11 years there. I knew no other than how to operate in a matrixed environment. And that can be difficult for people. Um, You know, knowing that it's not just you that's fully in control of your destiny, but you have to recognize the dependencies that need to happen across different functions and 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 how to work with them. And so I I learned that and and I think that 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 was an incredible skill that I brought at a senior level to the company because especially in big companies they they're they're um, sometimes reticent to want to take a risk on a- external talent in the higher up positions because the cultures are very unique. You need to learn how to embrace the culture yet still be able to transform and come up with big ideas. Um, and you need to know how to work across function to get things done. And oftentimes it's easier to just hire from within because every company comes with its set of complexities and its own unique corporate cultures. But as long as you come in with a respect for that, but yet you still know how to work within that to come up with the big ideas that is expected of you at a senior level and you know how to how to work across departments to help support your vision, but also in support of what they're trying to achieve as well, then you'll have great success. But otherwise, uh, it can be very difficult if if you're a one-man band and, and you believe that you can be an individual hero in your success. Big companies, especially in matrixed environments, that is not the key to success at all. Right. Um, I'll tell you that I think a lot of agency people are curious about the process associated with the hiring of a CMO. Um, you were hired at SAP by the company's CEO, Bill McDermott, who is a revered character in the business world. Um, what are your lasting memories of the hiring process to become a first-time C- uh, CMO? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, um, you know, one of the the questions that Bill had asked me was what type of a CMO I am. Um, and it was an interesting question, yet uh, – and, and remember, it's coming from the CEO of your organization. And the, the view is that you're not going to be both one who's focused on driving pipeline or demand to work in support of the sales process versus someone who's a very brand marketing CMO. And so the question was, well, which are you? And uh, and and I think uh, certainly to Bill's credit, there there typically are one or the other. Uh, you're going to get someone who's entirely focused on on brand. 
Um, or you're going to have someone who's who's more sales minded and more focused on on pipeline and revenue. And to be honest, it it, it may sound a bit cliche that I will say this, but um, I definitely believe that I am both because the effort that you put around driving brand and campaigns and the awareness around that absolutely drives demand and new business and retention of existing business. The key is in how you create that connection from brand to demand. So how do you effectively catch the demand that's coming in and ensure that it's showing up in your demand generation efforts, driving that pipeline that's necessary to ultimately support the growth of your company? And so I've always built marketing strategies that recognize the dependencies on both and what the process as well as the technical dependencies are to be able to have those two work hand in hand. And so that was the that was the one the one question that stood out a lot to me is um, and there's a lot of churn in the CMO role in particular. And and when I think about that, I think I think so much of it comes down to that question because you get you, 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 and then oftentimes you know companies they go through different stages. You introduce a new product, so then you have to put a, tr- a ton of awareness around it. Um, but eventually, that awareness needs to turn into pipeline, so that you're ultimately selling the product and being able to demonstrate the sale of that product through the ways in which marketing is supporting it. And if you have a CMO that is only focused on brand and driving awareness, but not translating that into pipeline to drive growth, uh, then you're going to have short-term success, but not long-term sustainability because it's a cycle. You're always going to be working to introduce something new, but you always have to turn that awareness you're creating into revenue, which then ultimately is the growth that your CEO is looking for. Yeah, you you mentioned churn, and this is the great uh, conversation related to CMOs in our industry today. I feel like the last stat I saw said that the average uh, length of a CMO tenure is something like 13 months. And so there's this contradiction. Well, we want you to come in and we want you to be disruptive and we want you to know exactly what your strengths are to change that which needs to be changed imminently. And we want to give you some space to test and learn, especially as a first-time CMO and some trial by fire. And we know that um, you're going to get some things right and get some things wrong on your path to getting smart. Um, But just make sure that you don't mess up because after 13 months. (laughs) So we want you to test and learn and feel free um, and and to not feel like you're encumbered by the fear of messing up. But also you can't mess up. Did you feel that pressure uh, or – you know, or what's your thought on that? So I didn't feel the pressure, but I was very clear on the need to build an end-to-end marketing strategy always. And the one thing that I do recognize is a lot of marketers are not trained to do that. And, you know, oftentimes you have you have marketers who are just very familiar in driving awareness, but believe it's someone else's job to see that ca- that campaign and think about how they are going to derive demand from that campaign. Uh, I actually see the world very differently, and I do spend a lot of time on this very point internally, which is making sure that with every single com- campaign we put into market – it is both there to drive awareness but to ultimately drive demand because that is the role of marketing. It is to tell the right story about the value that our brand brings to a company and ultimately we want that company to see our value, understand the products we have to be able to help deliver that to them deliver them the information they need, and turn those opportunities into new customers for our business so that we can we can ultimately grow uh, and, and be a profitable company and, and attract customers for life. And it's a cycle, and it repeats itself over and over and over again uh, with every new product we introduce, every new segment we look to jump into, and every new changing dynamic in the marketplace that our customers are dealing with. And 
Um, I, I think that that is something that has always been top of mind for me as a marketer to make sure that you have that balance in what you do because your CEO may be very focused on awareness, but your sales organization is totally focused on revenue and growth, which comes from your pipeline and marketing playing a role in contributing to the strength of your pipeline, the health of your pipeline, pipeline that's going to convert into new business. There are so many stakeholders that depend on that marketing organization, and you need to recognize what they depend on you for, and you need to make sure that you're delivering against it every single day because every stakeholder is going to have a different need, which is why marketing is such a big central part of an organization because there's very few departments that – uh, that there's uh, that level of dependability into their goals, their KPIs, like there is with the marketing organization. Yeah. Does the does the hiring process and the conversations within it essentially set you up to hit the ground running on day one and know what you've agreed to and sort of know the first steps that you want to take? Or when you start a job like that, is there a period of observation where you're sort of trying to figure out what the questions are before you can figure out what the answers are? Yeah, and, and, and I can relate that to my own hiring practices. When I, when I look to bring team members uh, into the organization, um, I'm very specific about the, the, the challenges that we're trying to solve for and the accountabilities of this role. I think that the more accountable we are as leaders – the greater opportunity we have to drive success. And I do think accountability is is a problem in the workplace. And I think that there needs to be clarity from the leader in terms of what you're accountable for. There has to be acceptance and translation of that into the day-to-day by the employee. And then uh, we need to be held accountable and leaders need to be holding their teams accountable for the clarity of role, for the success that's expected to come. And I'm very clear during the interview process on what I expect, and then I'm equally, if not more clear, if that person uh, does in fact come on to the team because communication's at the core of, of great successes and also greatest failures in the world. And you can never expect and assume that someone knows how you want them to do the job or what success looks like in the job. You have to be crystal clear about that. And it's not just in the beginning or during the formal annual review process. It's every day with every project. You have to be clear. You have to, be, you have to openly communicate. And I've always practiced that in every leadership role that I've held in my career and I will say, I mean, I've got I've got the best people uh, working hand in hand with me every single day because we don't wait for those annual processes to have the the fun or the tough conversations, whatever it may be in your life. We have them every single day, so that when we do get to that formal review process, it's it's more of a of a discussion and a reflection right. than delivering news that they've never heard before, which I think is the worst way to have in a, a relationship and to build a team culture. Those meetings are always the strangest when they're set up as you describe, which is like you go into the office of a person who you interact with every day, but something <laughs> is different and their energy is different and there's a formality. And it's like, well, I know this is the person I interact with every day. And yet we're having this conversation yeah. as if like, you know, the, the FBI is listening in on it. Um, <laughs> and that clarity is so clear. I've heard it boil down really beautifully to, you know, during the hiring process, um, so often, either the candidate wants the job so bad that he or she is overselling themselves and their capabilities, or the uh, or the employer wants to fill the role so urgently that they're overselling or not fully explaining or being clear about the role. And in either situation, what you're doing, and I love this term, is you're creating premeditated resentment. You love know, it. and so you know, I, I know I've, I've experienced it momentum, and it sounds like it's been a sort of governing principle for you that mm-hmm. let's talk about what your strengths are and what plays immediately on day one. And let's be really honest about what you need to learn and, and what we can't expect you to be a, a subject matter expert on until you've been here for maybe six months or a year. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, you've championed a shift at SAP from a very sort of product-centric story to a purpose-driven story. Uh, can you take us on the journey from first introducing this shift to your executive board uh, and to getting to a clearly defined, clearly communicated purpose? Um, and why was that so important? Yeah, when I when I came into this role um, 18 months ago, I did what a lot of CMOs uh, don't typically to do, which is I looked behind and I looked back on 46 years of, of when SAP was founded uh, by five leaders who left IBM with a belief that they could change the world. And they were going to do that through technology. They were going to create new opportunities um, and a new purpose for uh, this idea for a company, which of course is SAP, that they believe could could really change the world. And as I was looking back and and really doing a lot of reading in the media and and seeing the reason for why we were founded, one thing stood out to me, and it was the purpose for why we were being founded. And Hasso Plotner, who uh, remains the chairman of the SAP board today, was was one of the five founding members. And he very clearly said repeatedly that uh, we believe that SAP can help the world run better and improve people's lives. And 46 years later, that purpose is still very much a big part of, of who we are and how we innovate. But like most companies, you kind of lose that along the way. You don't talk about it as consistently you, you acquire companies and you start to acquire their way of thinking or their purpose and, and what have you. And what I realized and what I needed to do, uh, becoming the CMO of a company that had made a lot of acquisitions over the past decade, I needed to find a unifying story that brought us all together as a brand because our ability to drive incredible success for our customers has to start with our culture and with our employees and what is our purpose and what are our beliefs and how do we innovate and how do we inspire everyone to bring their best every single day. And I believed that we needed to write a narrative for the company that focused on our reason for be being and what we believed we could do, which is that purpose that Hasso Plotner had created 46 years ago, which is to help the world run better and improve people's lives, especially in today's marketplace. Why that is so relevant is because people buy value and they buy this desire to believe they're part of something so much bigger than what they're buying to into from a day-to-day -day standpoint. And, and being able to do good in the world and partner with people who share in those beliefs, that's really meaningful for people today. And to me, that felt like the greatest unifying message of SAP because it, it, it was and is authentically who we are. And so, you know, the team and I uh, put together – a narrative to reflect that, that we wanted to serve as the anchor for everything we do across our company, uh, whether it be how we market or how we innovate or how we build strategy. We wanted it to be built on this belief that we had the ability to change the world and make it a better place through our technology. And so uh, I had my first board presentation about three months into the role where I had to present this idea um, and and I'll never forget. Uh, and and it was it was it was tough because everybody wanted to have a discussion, certainly, and I understood that on how a narrative like this would help us sell software. And um, it was a it was a very thoughtful and engaging discussion on the belief that how you sell software is first connecting with people emotionally and. And, and expressing what you have co in common as it relates to values and aspirations because the world runs on relationships and um, it, it runs on common beliefs. That's what brings communities together. 
What also brings communities together is a thought that you can do something better and you can change the world on in some way. And so we had an incredibly thoughtful discussion about um, well, if you want to do that, what's technology's role in enabling that? And, and is SAP set up to be able to enable that? And during that presentation, I brought together many stories of customers that are, in fact, using our technology to solve problems across the environment, the economy, and society. And to be able to see that and see those use cases of how we are, in fact, doing this and and just putting it more at the forefront of how we speak, it then became a very easy conversation. I had one of our board members who um, who had said to me that, uh, you know, this is the proudest I've been in 27 years, and this is why I joined SAP, and to know that this is truly what we all have in common across our 97,000 employees and our nearly 400,000 customers, this is what it's all about. And so that was the way I, I had introduced it, and and, you know, two and a half hours later, after an incredible discussion with both our executive and our supervisory board members, we were on our way and we introduced the first brand narrative that SAP had had in 46 years. Wow. As you talk about that board meeting, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, sometimes it's easier to be a change agent when things aren't going great. Uh, I try to put myself in your shoes walking into a board meeting to propose, you know, a pretty radical shift uh, in thinking to a company that at the time has you know thirty billion dollars in revenue and the stock price is healthy and things are going pretty good. Uh, so, did you think about that going in? Of like sometimes it can be different, uh, difficult to propose a major change when things are going well, as opposed to when things are going not so well. Yeah, I mean it's a great point. I mean it's the you know um, don't fix it if it's not broken sort of mentality and. Yet, though, great companies are always evolving. You have to because every day there's a new challenge, whether it be politically or socially or environmentally. Um, there is always something that's impacting the way we operate and the way our customers think. And we have to be in touch with that. And, um, you know, our ability to remain successful is never losing sight of what our customers are dealing with day in and day out and what innovations they need to be able to solve the problems that they face every day. And and that's what this was about. And it was it was not about this massive change or doing something that was not authentic to SAP. Right. This was a change, but it was completely aligned and even showed us, showed more of the heart of this organization because it was truly authentically SAP. And so I think that that's also what's at the core of so many great innovations is it's, you know, they, they, are, they are those that are totally in touch with society and what people need. They connect with them emotionally and it's delivered in a way that's nothing but truly authentically you. And if you can get that right, then to me, that's what the definition of uh, of success is from an innovation standpoint in today's marketplace. The, the associated tagline with this shift to purpose-driven is, the best-run businesses make the world run better. Um, when we talk about purpose, you mean it in a way that's sort of bigger than just financial results. You mean it in a way that's about you know, truly making the world a better place. Did you feel any resistance to this ambition among customers? And just to define terms, when we say customers, we essentially mean your clients were, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world. Yeah, I mean, what we essentially did, uh, the best run was a tagline that we had about two decades ago. But our tagline then was primarily about the products we offer to help you run your businesses effectively. It was how do we solve your back office challenges to help you run as effectively as you can to be able to compete and grow in the marketplace. And that meaning of the best run um, still very much holds true. But what we decided to do is turn it on its head a bit and, and, and put a very strong stance behind externally what it takes to be a best-run company. So it was more outcome-focused, more outward-looking versus what we do to help you run internally better, right. but more about what it takes to be seen as a best-run company 
in society today. And so many companies, uh, which is incredible to see, and leaders recognize that in order for you to be understood and admired as a company in today's society, it's it's about how much you're willing to give back and how much you're willing to not just stand for something but put the power of your company behind it to really make an impact and to make a change for good. And that was the shift that we made when we brought Best Run back but made it more about what you need to do, certainly through the partnership with SAP, to be able to have the means to be seen and perceived as a best-run company in today's world. And that is so much about how you help the world become a better place. That is what people look to you for, and that's what enables you to gain the admiration that every CEO is looking for that's building a company in today's environment. Well, yeah, and there and there's so many companies that are using SAP technology to serve their agendas to change the world. And these are sort of beautiful stories of impact. Um, how tricky is it to tell your own brand story through this conduit of your customers? I don't think it's tricky at all. And in fact, we made a really conscious decision uh, a year ago that we were only going to tell our story of purpose through our customers. Because one of the things, and I and I think that this is changing, there was a belief that saying you're a purpose-driven company is a trend and it's the thing to do a year ago and and everybody needs to to be out there saying that they stand for something and and you know you better jump on board and do it as well. But uh, those companies and the authenticity of those messages found their way out pretty quickly. Right. And for us, we we didn't want to get caught in that. And so we felt, hey, it, it goes back to my presentation to my board as well. The immediate question that you have when you say you help the world run better and you improve people's lives is how? Give me an example. How are you doing this versus just simply saying that you are? And the best way for us to do that was to showcase customers who are, in fact, partnering with us to help solve the problems that they've identified. And I've always been a believer, and it's at the core of how SAP operates as well, the way you can really inspire and create impact around change is you do it together and you do it through collaboration. Uh, some of the greatest successes in our world uh, were done through collaborative efforts between companies, between individuals, within communities, with groups of people, with groups of companies. That is truly how you can scale impact and, and, and make the change happen. And so for us, it was easy to bring those customers to the forefront. And, and we have an incredible portfolio of customers and relationships with our customers who wanted to tell that story right alongside with us. Sure. There's a mutual benefit there. Um, I'm dying to ask you this. So, you know, during your four years at SAP, uh, the company has enjoyed incredible success. As you navigate each day, um, what is your relationship to the company's stock price? Do you know it at all times? Uh, Do you find that it's helpful to look away for long stretches? What's that relationship like between CMO and stock price? (laughs) Well, uh, whether you're the CMO or the CEO, you have a love-hate relationship with your company's stock price because – as we know, especially with uh, with our markets of late over the past few quarters, uh, the the markets uh, are in an interesting place, and it it has an effect on your performance day in and day out. Um, I don't get too caught up in it um, because I am an eternal optimist. And I believe that there are often many factors that dictate how your company is performing in the markets each day, but it should never serve as a demotivator. In fact, it should always motivate you. Um, Every day you look at indicators of company success and company growth. I think looking at your stock price is just one of them. I think looking at those things such as feedback from your customers and how they are perceiving your value that is an incredible indicator of your success. And that needs to be a repeated process that happens often around understanding how customers are 
achieving value with their partnership with you or if they're not and what we need to change to make sure that that value is, in fact, being received in ways that we expect it to. And so being in touch with customers, being on the road, surveying them often, which we can now do uh, uh, quite often through the acquisition of Qualtrics and the new software that they offer – to help you drive exceptional customer experiences. But there are so many indicators of our value and success. The stock price is one of them, and it is something that I absolutely do look at every day. But it is only one indicator, and there's many other things that we can look at to really understand the value and what we need to achieve to make sure we're bringing the big ideas every day. I told someone that I was going to ask this to you and to every CMO that I interview, and the person's response was, if they say they don't look at it every day, they're lying. (laughs) <laughs> they are lying. They are lying. And, and uh, you know, your iPhones make it so convenient for you to just go and see it right. uh, immediately and the indications to go off when it's moving sure. in, in either direction. Um, but but you have to um, because so much of the, the role uh, of a marketer is – to be in touch with what your CEO is thinking about and what keeps he or she up every single night. And the stock price is one of them, if not the biggest thing. Um, You know, how we drive shareholder value every day so that it is reflected in how the markets receive us. That is absolutely something that my CEO thinks about every day, every night, (laughs) repeated across a seven-day period. And Therefore, for me not to be thinking about that and reacting to that with how marketing can continue to show and demonstrate our value, there has to be that linkage in the way that our CEO thinks in order for he or she to understand the value that marketing creates in terms of the things that they're thinking about every single day. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about the the resurrection and the redefinition of the best run tagline, and this was launched with a, a brand campaign starring Clive Owens. Um, as a CMO, do you remember the moment in your career when you became fully comfortable with being the decider of a multi-million dollar campaign? Does it still make <laughs> you sick to your stomach? You know, I I, I don't I don't really. I think I don't think about it necessarily in the way that you've you've just presented it. But what I do think about is um, I don't like to get caught up in things that that might feel intimidating because then you question your move on every term. And as we know, we we live in such a fast paced world that. You know, an idea one day is magical, the next day it's terrible. And you got to be able to trust your instincts, read the data, understand your customers, understand the marketplace conditions to come up with ideas fast and be ready to execute them even faster. Um, And so I I feel proud to, to be able to have that role where I have the ability to create those campaigns in those moments. But I also know that there, I'm in this role because I'm trusted and I have good judgment. And by that, I need to, I, I need to remember that first and foremost every time I make a decision. And if I question myself, I'm slowing down and I'm slowing down the team I'm slowing down the execution, and then somebody else is getting to market faster than I am. And so it's about trusting yourself and making the big decision decisions when they matter and making them with urgency and speed because being first to market and being that market mover really matters. Yeah. Um, what's your philosophy uh, based on what you're describing? It's it's about your judgment, and it's also about um, your trust in your team uh, and the management of your team. What is your philosophy overall on managing people? And has that changed as you've grown and as the chain of command uh, reporting to you has grown? It's a great question. Um, and it goes back to, to what we were talking about a bit earlier on you have to be very clear in the beginning of a relationship. It's what do I expect out of this relationship and what do you expect? And, and how do we keep those lines of communication open at all times so that we never fall off of the same page from each other because that's when trust erodes and then ultimately that's when your success gets impacted. And so clarity of purpose, clarity of accountability, 
holding the team accountable to that, yet removing barriers when they need to be, and that does happen often, to ensure that that success can be met, um, then I operate with a total sense of trust at all times with my team. Uh, I run a very empowered team, a very accountable team, and that way we know we know when we can make the big decisions comfortably with each other. We don't get slowed down uh, because we understand what we're there to do, and and we do that quickly. What do you think about more being too hard on people or too soft on people? Great question. Um, I think it's a balance of both, and it it depends on the situation. Um, and 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 at times, I don't necessarily think it's about either. Um, it's about just being as clear as you can at all times. And we don't always agree on things. And I have no problem voicing my opinion on on my point of view. But I also am extremely open-minded. And do we have fierce discussions? Absolutely. Do I think we always come out in the end in a place that is the right place? Yes, I do. And that's because we have this open environment with clear accountabilities and a lot of mutual respect for each other. And um, sometimes I do walk away at night saying, oh, gosh, I was really fierce when I when I was delivering my point of view. But then there are certainly other times where I'll say, oh, I was so busy. I don't think I was that clear in, in – and to your point, I was maybe too soft in, in how much I believed in this thing. We all go through that every sure. day. Um, but you catch up to it though pretty quickly because we're all accountable for what the decision is in the end. And you might have to catch up to some things, um, being more clear, being more fierce, um, not holding back, which I think plays into the too hard or too soft view in, in feedback. But I think you eventually do catch up to that because we're all accountable in the end when we have to be. Yeah. In interviewing a few dozen uh, CCOs, I was surprised to learn that, yes, they have meetings scheduled throughout the day, but that their days predominantly are less structured than people might imagine. And there's freedom in the day to flow to opportunity or to flow to crisis. Um, my, my assumption on you is that if I looked at your calendar, it would just be a stack of adjacent colored boxes that start in the morning and end in the evening. Um, how structured is your day and how sacrosanct is that schedule? Uh, it's a great question because I was just talking with my team about this this morning when, uh, you know, I looked at yet another back to back to back to back to back day. Um, the key is just don't eat or go to the bathroom and it's fine. <laughs> And that is sometimes <laughs> what my day is like. And especially dealing with two kids at home with the flu right now and trying to give them the love and care and attention they need, plus also be the CMO of the world's largest enterprise technology company. Um, this is when when uh, when the when the juggle really matters. But I think that we all have to make that time daily to think. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and even though my day is is pretty structured, you do wake up in the morning, though, having to deal with things that were not part of that structure. And so you have to have that flexibility in your day to be able to pick up and shift gears and, and deal with a hot topic and deal with the stock price or, or think about a new campaign. Um, the agency dropped the ball. Never, never, <laughs> um, and 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 to get people rallied around. I mean, and if you think about meetings, are only successful when you're getting stuff done, yeah. and you're having that time to think and and strategize and learn something new. And and if you have a, a day that's just so structured 
that you go home each night and you're like, wow, I was so busy, but I have no idea what you did that day, then you got to change things up. And I say this to my team all the time. I said, never exit a day looking back, not knowing what you accomplished, but but feeling like you were so stressed and so busy that you didn't have time to take a lunch break. That's the worst way to have a day. Easily said, not easily uh, able to deliver, but I think if you can go in with that mindset and hold true to it and put those blocks in your day so you can think or walk around and, and talk to people just to say, how you doing? <laughs> Things that, that really matter and, and, and inspire people, you have to do it. Yeah. And one of the skills I think you have to develop as a senior executive is just learning how to say no to things that appear on their face to be important. But with a little bit more investigation, you realize you maybe don't need to be in there. And so it's your your greatest asset is your time in the day and is and how are you going to invest each one of those blocks. And it comes down to what we were talking about in terms of your trust and empowerment of people. Yeah. Um, I get excited about a lot of things. Uh, I really do. But I can't be part of everything. I have to ensure that my team of very, very strong leaders – understands what I'm excited about so that when they take a meeting and I'm not there, they recognize what the idea needs to be to to get me really excited and and want to stand behind it. Mm -hmm. If I'm not openly communicating that often, then I am going to need to find myself in every single meeting. And there are just not enough hours in the day for me to be able to do that. And so communicating and building that trust so that others know how to operate and know what's going to to be a good idea in my mind so that they can go take that meeting and just, you know, show me the beautiful result. You know, that's what we have to focus on as leaders. Yeah. I've always thought that um, our clients endure daily challenges beyond our comprehension sometimes. And we as creative agencies should should be the hour on your schedule that you're most looking forward to. That is, that's one way that we think about our aspiration. Do you look forward to the part of the day when your agency is showing you ideas or is that just me blowing smoke? It's my favorite part of the day. It really is. And and hopefully you've seen that in, in the interactions that we've had yeah. with each other. When um, you've presented me with ideas and I have a chance to react to them. I mean, this is, I mean, if we go back to the very beginning of our discussion and I and I talked about what shaped me and and what led me into the career that I'm in today, it's creativity. And I truly believe at the heart of every marketing strategy is is creativity. And to be able to to kick around ideas that um, you know span a, a wide variety of opportunities, those are absolutely the best meetings to see how we think about doing something differently or or how we bring something in a unique way to market or how we showcase our brand in in ways that cause people to say, oh, wow, I didn't know that that SAP could enable that. It is about those new and unique ways to do that. And so when we have these creative sessions, they're absolutely the highlight of my day. When I'm a buyer of anything, a car, uh, a shirt, whatever it may be, when the person selling me that item refers to me as a client, I find it sort of jarring. Um, you know, agencies call the companies, companies that they work for clients, and it's this sort of inherently cold transactional word. Um, what can agencies do better to build tr- trust and go from that sort of client notion to more of a partner notion? But I would also say, um, likewise in reverse, companies refer to agencies as agencies. Oh, the agency came right. up with this idea. Oh, the agency's coming into the office today. Um, so it it it's it finds itself on on both ends, and I have to tell you, there are many pet peeves that I have in life. But two are when we refer to younger employees as junior employees, or when we refer to agencies as agencies, um, because everybody is part of the same family, and we have to treat our partners as extensions of that family. Um, it is the only way for us to realize the creative opportunities that we have together to push our brand in new and innovative ways. And so if we refer to us as anything but what we should be is part of the same family focused on the same goals, coming up with new and unique ways to achieve great success for our brands, then we're doing the relationship a disservice and we're never going to get out of it what we want because – Everybody wants the respect that we have for ourselves and 
And a big part of that is how we refer to each other in terms of the role that you play in our relationship. Yeah. And there's some there's several ways to earn that. The best way is time, time and success, mm-hmm. you know, in some order. Um, the other agency parlance is the word sell, you know, as in we sold a campaign, we sold the work. Uh, what is your feeling on the notion of sell and being sold to? Uh, do you like that idea? Do, do, does it make you feel weird? I hate that idea. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to be so yeah. direct, but um, it is – it's just not about that. It's just not – I mean we want to feel that um, – Every idea is an idea and has potential to do incredible things. And to know that, you know, this is a way we can upsell a customer, um, it, it's, it, it just doesn't get to that emotional sense that is such a big part of how sales happen today. And so presenting it as something that just feels like it's an off-the-shelf and just simply just – tweaked to to put in our company name on some level, I mean, you, you can sniff that out pretty quickly. Um, it has to be about the mutual understanding you have about what we're trying to solve and kicking around ideas during every part of the day versus it be just one thing that gets presented at one time without any evolution associated with it. You've, you've mentioned creativity and you've mentioned judgment and instinct. Um, you know, we went down a path this summer uh, uh, associated with SAP's relationship with the NBA that has culminated with this in- incredibly exciting piece of content that we co-created together, um, uh, Momentum and SAP and, and the NBA and all our partners called GM School, which just coincidentally, and it truly is coincidentally, <laughs> happens to be airing tonight as a one-hour special on the NBA network. Um, that idea wouldn't exist without your gut instinct to say yes. The thing that I loved so much when we first talked about this idea together is when you think about things in life, and I talked about my dreams of of becoming a, a rock star, there are roles in life that are nothing more than just dreams because it's impossible to understand how to get access to them. There's so few opportunities out there that exists for the population in the world that we have and the number of rock stars that exists. The same holds true with being a GM in the NBA. These are dreams which very few people know how to ever make a reality and oftentimes never even think about how to make it reality because it just feels like a dream. It's like, I don't know how I can become a GM of the NBA. I don't know anyone. And you have to be someone or know someone to you even to be able to league. do that. You have to play and and you got to be famous and you got to be on TV before they would even consider you to, to, to take on a, a dream job like that. And we want it through this idea to say, hold on a minute. We're going to make some dreams a reality here. We're going to give you that access. We're going to open up some doors for you. And we can do that because we have and and have had for a while this beautiful partnership with the NBA. And we're going to do it in a way that brings value to the NBA through the skills that are the future of what GMs need to have in order to have their teams remain competitive. And it's about opening doors, and it's about opening doors around people who have the skills that are really going to be the future. So being able to connect NBA with that talent and and be able to showcase SAP in a way that 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 allows people to realize their potential. Amazing idea. Yeah. I learned <laughs> I, I learned today that it's the NBA's first ever foray into reality television. So that's a great claim to fame. You talk about dreams. Uh, creating that concept with your team led by Dan Fleetwood has been a dream for us. So it wouldn't exist without you. And it's an exciting day for all of us. So thank you for that. Um, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I know you have to go. If I could just speed round a couple, I'll get you out of here. Great. Um, the first speed round question is, um, what is a quality you admire in another CMO that you maybe wish you had more of? Patience. That's a good one. What's one piece of work from another brand that's made you jealous? I would say taking a stand 
on something that matters. I think we've done that and are going to continue to do that. But there's been some brands that have come out there pretty aggressively very quickly. Great. What is a unusual habit or maybe even sort of an absurd thing that you do that informs your creativity or helps you manage stress? I read a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, reading and being in touch um, is absolutely how you open up your mind to new ideas. What is your most despised corporate jargon? All of the acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, acronyms. There are far too many. We have dictionaries so that we can help new employees understand what our acronyms are. That's terrible. Just get rid of the acronyms. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I ask CCOs before client meetings, do you still get nervous? I'll flip the question on you and say, before board meetings, do you still get a little nervous? Of course. Um, I mean, these are the the leaders of our organization who are faced on, faced with making the tough decisions every day that aid in our growth. And to know that you're in a room with, with such power, to, to have that frankly, privilege to even be able to present an idea to them. It's the privilege and the honor that makes me nervous. Um, and more, it's it's um, also in terms of ner- – also in addition to nerves, it's just, you know, that feeling and that sensation that you get when you you feel so honored and privileged. And, and, and that's how I feel whenever I talk with the board as well. Alicia Tillman, thank you for being here today. Um, thank you for letting us be part – of your purpose mission. Uh, And we look forward to being a partner with you and seeing where it goes and lots of great stuff to come. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And me too. And thank you so much for your unbelievable part of our family that you play as well. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much to Alicia. Thank you to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, my man, Jeff Fiorello. And if you're liking the pod, please share it with a friend or colleague. And until we talk again... Peace.